Tonight's scripture is from Luke 10, uh, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be neighbors to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. So our encounter with Jesus tonight involves a lawyer, not a lawyer in the sense that we would think of one, but more a scholar of the law. This was someone who studied the law of Israel and made sure that people kept it. And so he's been listening. This comes out of a part of the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is speaking to the 72 and preparing them for a mission. And the lawyer's kind of hanging around on the outside. And he, he blurts out this question in the middle of it. It's kind of like a, uh, oh, uh, kind of like a dean overseeing a professor who's gone awry or something like that. And he wants to bring him back, to call him back into line. And so he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That would have been a common question. That was one of the things that you wanted to uh, find out that your rabbi knew the answer to. And Jesus, as he often does, answers a question with a question, and he says, well, what's in the law? The lawyer knows his Torah, immediately cites two verses from the Old Testament, uh, Deuteronomy and Leviticus, combines them together. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. That was the right answer. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. But then it says something interesting. It says that the lawyer wanted to justify himself. So why would he do that? He's gotten the answer right. He's made sure that Jesus is... On the same wavelength, what's going on here? Well, I think it has something to do with how he defined neighbor. Because he's quoted uh, from the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, where it does say, love your neighbor as yourself. But that chapter is a part of a section where uh, the scripture is calling Israel to separate from the nations and not be corrupted by the other nations. And it's a very stark portion of scripture that essentially says, don't associate with people outside 
of Israel or you'll be corrupted. And that's significant because what, what a Jew would have thought in the first century it meant to love your neighbor would have been love another Jew. Love the people that are like you. Love the people that look like you, believe like you, uh, worship like you. And so I think he's wanting to have Jesus affirm that view of neighbor love. But Jesus tells them a story uh, instead. And the story takes place on the Jericho Road. Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho is 20 miles away, about 800 feet below sea level. It's very steep, it's very windy. Uh, it, it's it's uh, very treacherous. As late as 1930, uh, you were counseled not to drive on the road at night. It, it earned the name the, the Road of Blood because it, it had so many switchbacks that you could easily hide on one side and then rob somebody and no one would know that you did it. And so everybody would have known the Jericho Road. So Jesus puts three characters into the story, and who they are is very significant as he works out this idea of who is my neighbor. The first character is a priest, and he's probably coming home from duty at temple. Uh, The way the temple sacrificial system ran was everyone born into a priestly tribe who was of a certain age would go into Jerusalem for two weeks and do their duty. So this is a high-status religious leader who is coming home from temple service. And he sees the man, but Jesus says he passes by on the other side. Well, then a Levite comes by, sees him, passes by on the other side. Now, a Levite was also a fairly high-status religious person in Israel. He helped the priests. He also had a couple-week shift that he had to fulfill uh, several times a year. And so he's probably coming back from the temple as well. So these first two religious leaders don't stop to help the man in the road. Now, Martin Luther King, uh, in his last sermon, uh, was preaching to sanitation workers in Memphis the day before he was shot, and this was the text that he decided to preach from. And he has a section in the sermon where, where he asks, why didn't they cross the road? And I just wanted to read a, a portion of it. He says, now, you know, we use our imagination a great deal to try to determine why they didn't stop. At times we say they were busy going to a church meeting, an ecclesiastical gathering, and they had to get on down to Jerusalem so they wouldn't be late for their meeting. At other times, we'd speculate that there was a religious law that one who was engaged in religious religious ceremonies was not to touch a human body 24 hours before the ceremony. And every now and then, we begin to wonder whether maybe they weren't going down to Jerusalem or down to Jericho Rather, they were going to organize a Jericho Road Improvement Association. That's a possibility now. Maybe they felt it was better to deal with the problem from the causal route, rather than to get bogged down with an individual effect. But I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible that those men were afraid. 
You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. He says, I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem. We rented a car. We drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. As soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. You start out 2,500 feet above sea level. By the time you get down to Jericho, 20 minutes later, you're way below sea level. Man, it's dangerous. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the Buddy Pass. And you know, it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over the man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was faking. And he was acting like he'd been robbed and hurt in order to seize them, lure them, take them home. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? So before we go much farther in the story, We're trying to figure out what it means to love our neighbor. Who is our neighbor? Jesus, as he often is, is expanding our understanding of what that means. And it has something to do with someone in our life path who's hurting. And it has something to do with crossing the road. Of identifying the person in pain and stopping what you're doing and helping. Well, the Samaritan, as he journeys, comes, sees them, has compassion, binds up his wounds, takes them on his own animal to an inn, pays for the keeping, tells them that whatever he spends, the innkeeper, he says, I'll repay you when I come back. Now, we often miss at this point how shocking this would have been to the first century uh, here because a Samaritan was a despised ethnic group uh, in Israel. And it goes back uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, They had lived in the north. The Jews felt that the Samaritans had intermixed with pagan races and uh, were not pure ethnically. And there was a several hundred year history of violence. And so really what what Jesus is doing here is taking a minority, a hated minority, someone who nobody would have thought would be a neighbor, and making them into the hero of the story. Now this comes out um, in the Cotton Patch Gospel paraphrase. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Uh, Clarence Jordan founded the Koinonia Farm community in uh, rural Georgia in 1942. He was a Southern Baptist minister. He was a farmer. And he built this interracial community in rural Georgia. Somehow along the way, he did a Ph.D. in New Testament Greek. And he became a retreat center for Dr. King and the civil rights workers. And you might imagine how well an interracial community in southern Georgia in 1950 with civil rights workers vacationing there went over with the neighbors. Uh, did not go over well. Uh, when, he would, when he died in 1969, he was so hated 
for his attempts at racial reconciliation, his family couldn't get a permit to bury him. Um, But in the last decades of his life, he he was mostly preaching to rural people, and he said, you know, I don't think they're understanding the gospel. I'm going to paraphrase the gospel so that rural uh, uh, believers can understand it. And so here's his paraphrase of the parable of the Good Samaritan. One day a teacher of an adult Bible class... (laughs) got up and tested him with this question. What does one have to do to be saved? Jesus replied, what does the Bible say? The teacher answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, with all your physical strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's correct, Jesus said. Make a habit of this and you'll be saved. The Sunday school teacher, trying to save face, asked, but just who is my neighbor? And then Jesus laid into him and said, A white man was going from Atlanta to Albany. (laughs) Some gangsters held him up. After they had robbed him of his wallet and his brand new suit, they beat him up and drove off in his car, leaving him unconscious on the shoulder of the highway. Now it just happened that a white preacher was going by. When he saw the fellow, he stepped on the gas and scooted right on by. Shortly afterwards, a white gospel song leader came down the road. You can see why his neighbors weren't thrilled with Clarence Jordan. (laughs) When he saw what had happened, he too stepped on the gas and sped away. Then a black man, traveling in his pickup truck, came that way and saw the fellow. He was moved to tears. He stopped, bound up the wounds as best he could, drew some water from his water jug to wipe away the blood, and then laid him on the back seat of the pickup truck. He drove all the way to Albany and took him to the hospital. And he said to the nurse, you take good care of this white man. I found him on the highway. Here are the only two dollars I have. You keep an account, and when payday comes, I'll come back and settle up with you. Now, if if you'd been the man, Jesus asked the Sunday school teacher, held up by the gangsters, which of these three, the white preacher, the white song leader, or the black man, would you consider to have been your neighbor? The teacher of the adult Bible class said, of course, the, uh, I mean the one who treated him kindly. And Jesus said, now you get going and start living like that. There's a lot of things going on in this story. It ends like this. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers, the one who showed him mercy. So Jesus is trying to expand this definition of neighbor from someone who's just like me to someone who is in my life, who's suffering, who's in pain, to a black man that, I may be prejudiced against. I mean, he's telling the story, and it's like throwing bombs. It's just exploding all sorts of categories and messing all sorts of uh, things up. And when I started to prepare this week, um, you know, we're going through this series on encounters with Jesus, and we're going to continue going in it. And I knew we were coming up to, uh, to go over and worship with OBC on next Sunday, and so I thought, maybe 
maybe there's an encounter with Jesus that would help prepare us uh, for that experience, because most of us have never done that before. I've never done that before as a church. Um, And I was led to this text. Now, I'll say I was led because about 10 to 5, I determined I wasn't um, tonight. (laughs) That happens sometimes. Um, Several of you have shared this with me, and I I now have come to the conclusion that I think you're right. I don't think we really need to prepare to go to OBC. Um, These are our brothers in Christ. God's brought a friendship into our life. Uh, We're just trying to walk it out. That's all the preparation we need. So if I had this week to do over again, there's a couple of things I'd have done differently. You don't need to know the other four. But the first one (laughs) is I would have picked another text, I think. Um, But I, I do think there's something about race in this story. It, it, I mean, Jesus didn't have to pick a Samaritan. He picked a, a minority who'd experienced a lot of oppression and had given a good bit back. So this is a racial story. And as I was listening to it, I'm trying to say, well, Lord, does this say something to us as we get ready to, to go over there? Um, you know, I'll be honest, the first thing I started to think of was that our, our brothers and sisters at OBC were the, the wounded person in the story, wounded by you know, racism, things like that, and that we are the good Samaritan going over to help heal their wounds. And I think there is some validity to that. I mean, if we're honest, uh, African-American brothers and sisters bear wounds that most white brothers and sisters don't. There's something to that. But as the week wore on and I prayed about it and talked to some of you about it, gradually it occurred to me that I'd gotten it backwards. And somebody uh, said, who invited who first? (laughs) I realized Daryl had invited us over there. And then as I began to think about that, God sent Daryl into my life. I'll never forget it. We were sitting on his couch a year and a half ago, and Lawrence Tulloch had set up an appointment. We were sitting in his office, and I was getting ready to go to the monastery, and I was just kind of needing some spiritual encouragement. And Daryl lit my, lit my fire, has ever since. I was the wounded man, and Daryl came over and crossed the road to care for me. And so I wonder if if this racial reconciliation thing works kind of like this. Maybe as we build relationships and friendships, you know, maybe someone you meet at the table at, at, at dinner next Sunday or however. Maybe something happens with you, like what happened with Daryl and I, and you just kind of start wanting to hang out. And what will probably happen then is you'll realize 
you're both wounded. And it's not a black thing and a white thing. It's sort of a human thing. And then I wonder if then all the categories start to kind of get jumbled up. And, you know, I look at Daryl and my relationship. Some days I'm the Samaritan. Some days I'm the wounded man. Some days I'm the priest. So I'm not exactly sure how this text prepares us for next Sunday. I think some of my counselors are right. Probably didn't need any preparation for next Sunday. But I do think it it, it portrays a beautiful, simple, clean picture of, of gospel relating. And it's just this. As you're walking down the journey of your life this week, whether you're white or black or brown, you're not responsible for all the needs of the world. You're not responsible for all the opportunities that come your way. You're not responsible for all the things we as a church try to talk you into doing. The only thing you're responsible for is that when someone's bleeding, as you walk by them on the journey, to stop and give them whatever you got. Maybe that's a good place to start a theology of reconciliation. Let's pray.